0: Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nate Sager. There are professional athletes that have lost it all and recovered, and there are others that have just simply lost their lives. But it's rare to find someone in that perilous crack that lies in between an uplifting tale and a tragic ending. And that's where Joe Murphy lives. And that is where journalist Rick Westhead found him in Kenora, Ontario. Joe Murphy, a Canadian, became the first college hockey player to be selected first overall in the NHL draft back in 1986. If that feat seems lost over time with the influx of US college talent into the NHL, remember it's just happened once since, and that was of course Rick DiPietro. Murphy was an enigma, marching to the beat of his own drum, sometimes referring to himself in the third person in a league that is quite uniform and still is, and that career of his lasted 779 games, from 86-87 to 2000 and 2001. Over that time he won a Stanley Cup with the Edmonton Oilers in 1990. So how did he end up destitute in Northern Ontario? Well, the roots may have been in a nasty hit he took on January 9, 1991, and the trauma it caused his brain may have altered the course of his future for the worse. And that's the premise of Finding Murph, how Joe Murphy went from winning a championship to living homeless in the bush by rick westhead an investigative journalist and senior correspondent with tsn
1: yeah thanks neil uh rick westhead is like a civil litigator uh making a final argument in this book uh, in making the case for national hockey league players to press their employer on a better system of aftercare and joe murphy is sort of like the plaintiff that he's come to know personally in the process uh You know, National Hockey League players are entitled to the full truth about the consequences playing an elite contact sport can have on a person's brain. Sure, they get so much fame and money in their 20s and 30s, and with the average NHL salary now nearing $3 U.S. per year before escrow and taxes. But like a great editor said, fame is a vapor and riches take wings. Uh, The other part of that easily Googled quote is that the only thing that endures is character, that is all gone Pete Tong for Joe Murphy, since it seems highly probable, as you mentioned, an untreated brain injury led to him being incapable of managing his, his affairs. We don't have definitive proof on it, but Rick gives us a pretty good idea about it. Uh, obviously good for Rick Westhead and Trevor Kidd from the NHL Alumni Association for trying to give Murphy some support. There is a bleakness in wondering what leverage players have to make the NHL change. I think their union has had a shorter end of the stick since the uh, 2004-05 lockout. And generally, society right now seems to have no way to pull the emergency brake on the 1% commitment to money above all else. I mean, this is all happening when we're seeing sports going on in North America since teams and the media rights holders want the money. But at the end of the day, we know that a market can change a product. Uh, Joe Murphy's plight is the—it's uh, like a through line for a book that really seems to be about a long history of science denialism that courses through our commercialized contact and combat sports. I would put Westhead's book on the shelf or on the app, alongside John Branch's Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bugard, and Ken Dryden's Game Change, The Life and Death of Steve Monidor.
0: Did it uh, just get a little darker in here?
1: Yeah, Dark Path is my driveway, Neil. Uh, I would not. I would definitely say get all these three books. Just don't read them back to back to back, and don't read any of them while listening to Leonard Cohen with a Crown and Cola on the end table. You know, December twenty twenty is going to feel long enough already. But Branch's boy on ice showed how much the opioid crisis is in, our, is in our sports. Like Derek Bugard is a prime example. He was a fighter, and he died of an overdose in twenty eleven. I sort of want to use that. To ask Wested, I guess, about progress with players using uh, cannabis for pain relief. The train is rolling on the use of it for like rest and recovery as a sleep aid, because since uh, we not, you know, players are saying they're using we're using edibles in the NHL playoff hub, as ESPN reported. That's been a thing in junior hockey, one of those leagues where players have to sleep on the bus after away games. Uh, general managers and agents might prefer you know, players using whatever gets them back in the lineup the quickest. Uh, Dryden's game change, of course, called on the NHL to ban all hits to the head. You know, ex- adapt the game to sort of reflect the risk and what we know about the risk. Of course, that can get turned around to, oh, you want to turn hockey into tiddlywinks? you might as well call it ball on skates. Yeah, that's exactly what I want. You know, while we're at it, those reverse retro jerseys, they should have some sequence. Yeah, no, it's about finding the optimal point where the game is fast and players use their skill to find order in the chaos but it's still safe to play without lowering the intensity to the level of flag football, to borrow a phrase from our recent guest, Brian Burke. So Dryden had his headline grabber, but this firm line in that book is just curbing the frequency and force of blows to the head. I think that points up how one can sort of lose the room or the solid ground when you use the hardline line verbs such as abolish or defund. Tricky analogy, but you know, with that hits to the head debate in hockey and you know brain trauma, it's, I think it's really sort of akin to what you know Gabrielle Giffords, the former United States Congresswoman who survived being shot in the head 10 years ago, was found while trying to get a voter buy-in in her home state of Arizona and elsewhere on reforming gun laws. You know, gun control is a literal trigger phrase to some people. You know, a simple reframe to gun safety can actually be a winning issue. People are more receptive. They're saying, "Okay, I see where you're coming from." I guess that's a her pro tip on de-escalation. Uh, you know, all culture wars are one thing. You know, one group says we should improve part of society somewhat through prescriptive measures, and one group doubles down with a rearguard action, and really they would probably both accept something similar.
0: Nate, uh, do you have a Substack newsletter I can subscribe to? You? It's coming soon, BFF Personal Padlock
1: Pinky Promise. Uh, what I remember sort of about those three NHL deaths, uh, you know, Bugard died in the spring of 2011, and then Wade Bielak and Rick Rippen each died by suicide that summer, you know, that's, I mean, probably seemed like a smoking gun to people who wanted to get, you know, get fighting out of hockey. You know, they were all sort of recently active NHL players. They were all guys who would, who were selfless about sticking up for their teammates, and by that point, the NHL was two years out from its first confirmed CTE case, uh, Reg Fleming, a tough guy from the 60s and 70s who died in 2009. Uh, Fleming facing a life of trouble due to the effects of earning a paycheck as he best knew how, had been captured you know three and a half decades earlier in Earl McRae's classic magazine profile Requiem for Reggie. So around the time of those deaths, as Westhead relates in the book, NHL executives and their you know correspondence between each others, you know, They had accepted the link between, quote, repeated brain trauma and personal tragedies. But, you know, the media didn't know about that. And while all that's going on, you know, one corner of the media says, okay, time to push all your chips in and and call for a fighting ban. But that created an opening for a counter narrative of, well, no, nothing needs to change, you're overreacting. You know, ironically, some of those latter takes, I think did point out that headshots were a far bigger issue for hockey than fights. That is actually the greater truth. Even when laced with just a bit of disingenuity. You know, I probably got caught up in that too, and in hindsight, the focus should have been on the head hits, mental health, and, you know, athletes, you know, self-medicating. Now, sort of segue toward uh, the science denialism I mentioned. You know, one would be forgiven, I think, for believing people have only gotten alert about sports brain issues within the last 15, 20, 25 years. Uh, Westhead shows in his narrative this didn't start in like 2008 or 1998 or 1978. He actually pins it to 1928 when a sports writer and NHL official Lou Marsh called for mandatory fiber helmets after seeing a Detroit player injured during a game in Toronto. That was so long ago that the Detroit team was still called the Cougars, not the Red Wings. That same year, a chief medical examiner in the U.S. named Dr. Harrison Martland published findings about punch-drunk boxers. So these concerns were raised. They were out there in medical journals. They probably made it into newspaper columns, such as Marsh's. But it's easy to imagine that, you know, it never really got placed at the front door of uh, hockey's gatekeepers, and thus they didn't have to act on it. Uh, Rick is kind of encouraging us to grasp that long tail with uh, brain trauma and the NHL, among others, you know, playing defense, creating some plausible deniability, and fans buying into that narrative. Uh, joe, for, as for joe murphy you know he could easily just be looked at as someone who had it all and blew it with bad choices but no one becomes a millionaire playing a sport and then plans to end up out unhoused at the age of 50. you know i so i take all that and sort of frame it in the knowledge that a health crisis of any scale can't really be solved solely through personal responsibility and preventive actions by individuals i think that general point is all around us every day right now neil uh, but thankfully, we do have this uh, time and space for a creative outlet with our podcast. Uh, we've had cheerier intros, by the way. you can trust us on that one, but definitely uh, visit sportslit.ca to verify it.
0: Well, today it's a tale of two Ricks uh, in some senses. We have uh, Rick Westhead coming up and Rick Vive later on, uh, uh, which you will see on a separate published podcast. Remember, you can find them all on our website at sportslit.ca and wherever you get your podcasts. So coming up, Rick Westhead to talk about finding Murph. Welcome back to sports lit Nate. Uh, of course, we're pleased to have uh, Rick Westhead with us today to talk about finding Murph. Uh, welcome in Rick.
2: Hi.
0: <laughs> um, so I'm going to ask you uh, the first question, which is, um, what is the latest on the whereabouts of Joe Murphy as you know it?
2: I, I don't know. I I understand from watching the news uh, that he has moved on from uh, west from Kenora, where I spent most of my time with Joe, and that uh, he's, at least this past summer, was in Regina in Saskatchewan. I understand that he's there now, but I have not had contact with him for some months. So I, I couldn't say...
0: And um, just for our listeners that haven't uh, read the book, um, so how did you first run into Joe Murphy and find out about his story?
2: Well, I found out about his story through doing my day-to-day job as a reporter with TSN and CTV. Um, In 2013, a group of former National Hockey League players sued the league Alleging that the NHL has downplayed uh, the the risks and dangers of repeated brain trauma And it was a compelling story. And so, you know at the time I was just moving over to TSN from newspapers and Picked up on this story and I thought that the best way to tell it was through the lives of uh, Players and their families who actually had been affected by repeated brain trauma and so that led me to profile players like Mike Peluso and Dan LaCouture. Um, you know, I got to know the family of uh, Matt Johnson, another former NHL player. Uh, we talked with Bernie Nichols uh, frequently about where he was at with his life and, and some of the symptoms that he was struggling through. And so Joe's story, uh, I, I, I learned of it. Uh, found out that he was said to be living homeless in Northern Ontario in Kenora near the border with Manitoba and so set off with the TSN crew to see if the, we could f- see if we could find him. Um, the, the, the arrangement that we reached with Trevor Kidd, uh, Trevor is a former NHL goalie uh, who lives in Winnipeg and spends some of his downtime in Kenora uh, with his family, uh, we agreed to go out together looking for Joe and uh, Trevor of course having played in the NHL wanted to make this offer to Joe for whatever help that he might need. Um, he was really disturbed that, to hear that a, an NHL player was living homeless. And, and the deal was that Trevor would talk to him and if Joe was open to it, that we would um, approach him for an interview. And if he wasn't open to it and he wanted to maintain his privacy, we turn around and head back to Toronto and we wouldn't film a, a frame of him. So obviously Joe agreed and we did a documentary for TSN. And that led to a book offer. And I remember talking to Joe about why he thought this was important. And he said that he wanted his story to serve as a, as a cautionary tale to, to other players. And that it also made him feel relevant for the first time in many years. So he wanted this project to go forward.
0: And the, the documentary came out in 2018, correct?
2: That's right. right. Yeah, and then the book came out uh, this fall.
0: On October thirteenth, um, so about uh, five weeks ago. Um, just in terms of, uh, of Joe, I mean, you you spent a lot of time around him. Um, so, I mean, where do you where do you see this ending? I mean, does that? Does, I mean, I know it's a haunting thought. It also could be encouraging. Maybe it'll end well. But where do you where do you see this ending? Given the amount of time you spent with him recently,
2: who can say? I've got no idea. You know that I know oh, I'm no expert on this. I'm, I'm not a doctor, obviously, and I'm not an expert on homelessness. I do know from talking to Joe and from advocates for who, who work in the mental health space and to people who work with the homeless. This is a really hard life, and you know what it, it has done for me is highlight the fact that there are many Canadians who are struggling in similar circumstances. You know, we're not doing books or podcasts about them because they didn't play in the National Hockey League and they weren't the number one overall pick. Right. But it's a very hard life from everything that I've been told. And I don't know how it's going to end for Joe. Um, you know, that, that turn to something more positive, to him accepting help, I hope that he gets to a point where he, he really truly wants that. Um, you know, I, and I, I know that he's battling with a lot of internal demons about whether to get off the streets or not. So, I mean, long answer, but I have no idea. Mm,
1: yeah. And, yeah, and Joe's plight is, you know, obviously, you know, <laughs> it, it's really striking, but how much is uh, Finding Murph also a, a book that explains sort of a long history of, you know, the contact and combat sports, sort of playing defense and trying to create, pl- you know, plausible deniability about, the risk of brain injuries and their lasting effects.
2: Well, you said it. It is this is the this is the attitude of the National Hockey League and other professional leagues. They're a business, full stop. I remember watching Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL testify last year in Ottawa, and he talked about how the NHL in his view is a family and the league tries to have services for players and their families who need them available. But hearing some stories about what the NHL has actually done and how it's managed players who have been brain injured and their families, both active players and retired players, doesn't sound very much like a family to me. You know, I'm reminded of the story of Bridie Lackateur, uh Dan Lacouture's wife, ex-wife. Dan Lackateur, uh I write about him in this book, uh, is a gritty New Englander who played for Boston Bruins and the New York Rangers. And when he was playing for the Rangers, uh, he got in a fight with Robin Regeer and fell backwards on the ice and smashed his head on the ice and was knocked unconscious. You can Google this fight and see it if you choose to. And when he, he regained consciousness and he's in the locker room after the game, and, you know, does he go for an MRI or a CAT scan? No. And no. Is he sent to see a neurologist? No. Is he sent to see a doctor? No. The team trainer basically gives his wife, this is according to her, um, some pain pills and tells her to keep waking Dan up throughout the course of the night. So you put yourselves in the shoes of Brady Lacouture. If this was your partner, if this was something that's happening, you know, not in the 1910s or 20s, but, you know, 1990s and 2000s, is that really the best the NHL and its teams can do for a player and their family in a situation like that? And, you know, where does that lead? Through repeated brain trauma, Dan Lacouture became a different person. His marriage broke down. He doesn't see his kids now because of this. His family is at a loss. So is the NHL a family? I think that there's evidence out there that suggests that it's not all players being brought out on the ice in convertibles and waving to the crowd and living their best life in retirement. There's other stories that need to be told, even as uncomfortable as they might be.
1: And true. And you sort of say, uh, you mentioned the 1990s and 2000s when things were going on, and they're still going on now. Uh, For our readers, why is the year 2000 the point you identify when when the NHL really should have started paying attention to long-term neurological damage and started funding brain injury research?
2: Well, the year 2000 is interesting because it was when... A group of neurologists came out with research that definitively linked brain trauma and long-term neurological problems. But again, I I, I point out that year, it's hardly the only milestone or signpost that Mm. the NHL and its medical team could have looked for. The the, the league, again, has pushed this narrative that brain injuries are something that no one used to focus on. That's just not true. You do not have to read medical journals or follow The Lancet magazine. Uh, medical journal to 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 know this if you watch cbc and ctv if you read the Globe and mail and the toronto star all of these collective studies showing that the risks of long-term problems like dementia and parkinson's and other brain diseases were higher with repeated brain trauma heck back in the 1930s during the great depression the ncaa came out with uh, a guidebook for for teams that played contact sports for universities, which was written by the head of, of surgery at Harvard University. And this was a warning to teams not to allow players back in the game until after their symptoms from concussions were gone. So you guys tell me, how is it that that warning can come out in the 1930s, back when NHL players still were not wearing helmets? And 30, 40 years after that, 50 years after that, it wasn't uncommon to see an NHL player woken up from unconsciousness with smelling salts and slapped on the butt and put back in the game. How, how, where's the logic? How does that make any sense?
0: It really doesn't. In terms of that research and finding all that documentation, I know you've been at this for a long time, but um, I mean what, what, you know, what first drew you to that and I mean how exhaustive was the research because there's a lot of information in this book uh, such as what you just mentioned?
2: what drew me to it maybe maybe the fact that no very few others seem to be doing it you know the new york times reporters like john branch ken belson have done a great job documenting the issue of brain injuries and in contact sports they particularly focused on the nfl of course because the nfl in the united states is the biggest of all the pro sports but where's the coverage been in in Canada? You know we have an ever we have an abundance of people who go to games you know hockey media who who cover teams ask guys how they're feeling will you look forward to the next game will you look back and tell us about your goals but where's the journalism and i guess that's one of the reasons that i was driven to do this because i thought there was a need for it you know we have a lot of people like i said who are media who might profess to be journalists but really when it comes to holding the powerful nhl accountable and an opportunity to speak truth to power i didn't see a lot out there and i thought this was important to add to the discussion
0: journalism is in in a very interesting place too and i mean there's media silos for example um you know the league for example has a lot of former journalists that write for them now so they probably would never touch this story Um, sportsnet has the rights to the NHL so I mean in a way are you almost in a in a perfect spot to actually be free to be a journalist because you know you're with TSN uh, that that doesn't have the rights so you're you're, I mean you're kind of free to do this do you think that these media silos are are part of the problem perhaps?
2: Well I'm not sure that I accept your argument Um, Sportsnet has Canadian rights to the NHL who says that that should stop a reporter at Sportsnet from looking into this? If you're a journalist, you're a journalist. TSN has ownership, TSN's parent company has ownership stakes in two of the largest teams in the NHL. TSN has local broadcast contracts with Canadian NHL teams. So the argument that TSN can do this where Sportsnet can't because of its business ties, I don't accept that. This is a, it's a subject that's important that players and their families like i said earlier deserve to have covered objectively and you know as long as you're right and balanced and fair which i've made an attempt to be i would think that every network would would allow reporters to go and do reporting like this
0: and and by the way i just want i didn't want to say that that was my argument i'm just throwing that out there as a possible reason as to why you know you're saying that there there isn't a lot of coverage out there perhaps that may be why Uh, Yeah, again, uh, I I appreciate your answer on that. Um,
2: And and it might be personal preference, right? hmm. At the end of the day, some people like going to the rink, and that's why they get into this, because they want to go to the rink and they want to be around pro athletes, and if they can find people I guess to to pay them to do that, more power to them.
0: Right. Um, Let's get into uh, a little bit more about Joe, uh, and how great he was or how good he was especially coming out of um you know going into to to university in the states so i'd love for you to set that up um when he ends up going to the michigan state spartans by reading page 41 if you will
2: the michigan state spartans had never before sent a private plane to pick up a potential recruit joe murphy was the first Well, a charter flight to fly Murphy to East Lansing, Michigan in early December 1984 cost thousands of dollars. It was money well spent, Spartans assistant coach Terry Christensen believed. Christensen had been on the Spartans coaching staff since 1980 and had spent his fair share of time on the road in Western Canada during the 1984-85 season, following Murphy and the Knights. He was convinced Murphy had the ability to be a generational player and he understood that the competition to land the young star was fierce. Besides offers from other U.S. college teams and the New Westminster and the Western Hockey League, Murphy had also received an invitation from Dave King to join the Canadian Olympic hockey program in Calgary. This guy could have played anywhere, Christensen said with an easy laugh from his own home in Rochester Hills, Michigan. We wanted to impress Joe and stand out from the competition. I don't think I've ever been so obsessed before about a player.
0: Yeah, wow. I mean, um, it's interesting. He kind of, he's a maverick from the start in a way, Joe, right? I mean, he's a Canadian guy. He goes to U.S. college. He's the first overall pick. And, I mean, you illustrate, too, his his nose for the net. He's fearless. I mean, yeah, I mean, what did you learn about him in terms of his skill level as a player and the way he thought the game as you started writing this book? Uh,
2: Just that about how fast he was how gifted he was a great shot a guy who would go into the corners and into the net uh, in front of the net but you know i don't really see this to be honest guys as a hockey book i see this as journalism right and so maybe there's not as much attention paid to what somebody could do on the ice as there would be in a typical hockey memoir for instance right um obviously this is a an effort to try to memorialize and document some of the bigger games in Joe's NHL career, like when he was a member of the Edmonton Oilers when they won the Stanley Cup in 1990. But to me, the most fascinating parts of his person personality and his character are revealed through him off the ice. Um, you know, one of the stories I, I love from this book is one that Harry York told me, and Harry was a, a guy who made it to the NHL, uh, played with St. Louis. And he was, he was pretty crafty and canny himself. This was a guy who would always carry a pack of Marlboro Reds with him because he knew that's what the veteran players liked to smoke and would always offer to drive them from their homes to the, to the airport. This is back in the time when NHL teams still traveled commercially. And so Harry tells a story that he had an apartment in the same complex as Joe Murphy. And on one weekend, Harry had his mother visiting and his aunt visiting from, <laughs> from Canada. Yeah. So imagine it's midnight and these two ladies are settled down in a couch watching Johnny Carson <laughs> and their hair is up in curlers and they've got cold cream on their faces and they're wearing glasses and big house coats and slippers. And all of a sudden the, jo- the, the door pops open and Joe Murphy busts in and goes right to the kitchen starts rooting through the fridge and the cupboards looking for some food, finds what he wants, comes back in the room, has never seen these ladies before in his life and sits down on the couch in between them and says, hey, ladies, what are your names? I'm Joe Murphy. It strikes me as something like almost out of Seinfeld where Kramer would come bursting through the door of, of an apartment. But Joe, you know, was outgoing and had a great personality and he definitely did not fit into the monoculture of the NHL. He was always somebody who was an eccentric, just different. Someone who, for instance, would carry the book *The Celestine Prophecies* with him during a season and, and read that, as opposed to a hockey biography.
1: Indeed, and, and uh, speaking of the, you know, the off-the-ice stuff you mentioned, Rick, uh, you know, viewing you know, what you were when you were writing about Joe early in his career when he was in the Detroit organization, I couldn't help but contrast it with how much teams, you know, interact with a potential draft pick. In hindsight, was he sort of like put into a really, you know, unfair situation when he was was in Detroit, like because the hockey world hadn't really learned to accept that kind of personality.
2: Well that's the way Neil Smith puts it. Neil, of course, went on to be GM of the New York Rangers and he worked with the with the red wings when joe was drafted and he thinks joe got a raw deal um you know here's a kid 18 first year in the nhl he's put in with the billet family and on one of the very first road trips goes to the airport to catch up with his team and take a flight but only then he discovers that there's two airports in detroit (laughs) um you know you'd think well this guy played michigan state he must have known that but you know where he was playing in in lansing that's not detroit so he's 18 years old and he goes to the wrong airport and he misses the flight. Jacques Demers is a new coach with the organization and he wants to establish that he is the alpha male. And all of a sudden, Joe is on the outs in the minors and you know finding it very hard to to earn his way back into the good books of Jacques Demers.
1: And I I think it's now, and I seem to remember too. You bring up the fact that, like, on Joe's nineteenth birthday, there was like a scathing column written about him in the Windsor Star, which covered the Red Wings in those days. Like, what kind of effect do you think that would have had on on his, you
2: know, young mind? Good question. What do you guys think? I mean, how would you feel if you were nineteen years old and somebody in your city where you lived? Was writing a column about you, saying that you were a waste of a draft pick and washed up, and a has-been who wasn't going to be able to meet the expectations of you.
1: I would feel pretty terrible, and I contrasted that with uh, the most recent first overall pick to come in the NHL was Jack Hughes, and he, I mean he scored seven goals in the sixty-one games, and he was, I think, last on the team in plus-minus, even though he only played three court quor- about three quarters of the games. But everyone's just like he's eighteen, he's a he's a he's a boy playing. In a, you know a men's league uh, and to see that that compare and contrast to joe not being given a chance really that really stuck with me when you related that
2: yeah good good comparison
0: uh, the um you know detroit too i mean they were they were there were some internal troubles too with some of the players so so joe in a way kind of came into an environment where he wasn't very insulated i'm, I'm not sure how many environments were insulated back then in, in the NHL, but certainly Detroit didn't seem to be the ideal place.
2: Well, you had all kinds of off-ice issues with players there between Bob Propert and, and Klima, that and, you know, there was no shortage of, of drama, um, whether it was players being arrested for for DUIs, getting in trouble for breaking team rules. I mean, this was a bit of a vagabond team, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it seemed that way. I'm just wondering. I'm, I mean, and this is just me thinking aloud. I'm wondering how how much different it was with most of the 21 teams at that time. I'm pretty sure there probably um, a lot of that going on with with some of the other teams as well. Um, it might have been a sign of the times. Um, so, in terms of in terms of Joe and and the contributing factors as to why he kind of may have slipped into this position that he is in now, CTE, drug use. Um, I was thinking about. His era and and money and you know he came into the league an eccentric talent and he was making just over two hundred thousand dollars to start the 90s and then the lockout happens and the salaries go up and he makes about two point eight million uh, a couple of years after the lockout which I I think that could be a contributing factor as well right he may have had access to to more I guess party favors per se uh, is that is that a plausible argument as well uh, Rick. <laughs>
2: I don't know if you're, by by party favors, do you mean does he have more access to drugs and and booze and women? I mean, haven't NHL players always had that?
0: Sure. A lot more money, I mean, at that time, too, in the league, right? I mean, to go from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to go to $2.8 million, that's a big difference in what you can buy.
2: Yeah, maybe it is. Um, I do know that Joe's, like we've talked about, is not nearly the only problem player that's wound up with problems. Right. You know, I I write in the book about a former NHL Rookie of the Year who wound up in jail in British Columbia for a couple days because he couldn't pay a bill in a cafe for, like, two bucks. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You know, or Derek Sanderson. I interviewed Derek Sanderson for this book. Right. Who was on top of the hockey world in the the 1970s -hmm. and then, you know, was sleeping on a park bench in New York and getting advice from other homeless people about how to position newspapers under on the bench so that he would stay dry as dry as possible through the course of the night
0: yeah um by the way an excellent uh, book uh, his biography by kevin shea if you haven't read it of course our podcast focuses on sports books so uh check that book out it's really good yeah and and, and there's that famous line right he said you know do you know who i am and the guy's like yeah you're a bum just like me right because that's how far yeah. he'd fallen Go ahead, Nate. And I'm sort of wondering, you bring
1: up Neil Smith, and I think it, you note in the book that he's doing his own independent brain injury research. Obviously, you can't speak for Neil Smith, but is it those sorts of problems that have sort of led him to want to find out the truth for himself?
2: I think so. And I, I think that there may be, maybe Neil has a mistrust of the system. The NHL has had so many opportunities to get this right. You know, beyond selling itself as a family, it's, in good times, this is a $5 billion business with teams who have relationships with some of the best medical minds in in the world. So why do they seem to get it wrong so many times? Why, why is it when, you know, Ken Dryden says of the NHL that they should have a ban on head hits, you know, this educated... Hall of Fame goalie who has done all kinds of things with his life that are interesting and when he becomes an advocate for that um, you know the Deputy Commissioner of the NHL Bill Daly, is asked about him in the course of a lawsuit and Bill Daly says of Ken Dryden well he's got some good ideas but he's really prone to grandstanding (laughs) why would you treat a Hall of Fame goalie with an idea like that uh, with scorn in 2017, Eric Glendross and David Mulder, the chief surgeon for the Montreal Canadiens, went down to the All-Star Game in Los Angeles and sat with the NHL's concussion committee and asked them to commit to investing a million dollars per team into brain injury research. It's been three years and they still don't have an answer from that group. Why would the NHL... like? How not that a layup? A million dollars per team? We're talking about A third or fourth line player salary. Yeah, true. The the concussion spotter program that the NHL celebrates and is so celebrated by among the media for moving things forward. People say routinely, Well, the NHL is doing so much better than it used to do, right? And they point to the concussion spotter program. You guys follow hockey. Who are the concussion concussion spotters in the cities where you live?
1: Yeah, team employees, right?
0: i mean who
2: are they we have no idea (laughs) how can you have trust how can the public have any trust in a system that has zero transparency if you pick up an nhl media guide you can find anybody who's working for an nhl club everyone advertises that fact massage therapists chiropractors team doctors trainers strength coaches scouts amateur and professional there's no secrets so why is it and i'm asking you this why is it that the nhl would not want to say the a single name of any of the concussion spotters whose job it is to make a call on whether a player should be taken off the ice to be examined by a doctor.
0: It's a very good question. Yeah, I'm not sure.
1: Now, that sort of does, you know, lead into something we did want to ask, uh, you know, what are concrete steps that should be taken to better meet I guess legal and moral obligations? to former players to make sure that no one, you know, to reduce as much as possible the possibility that someone falls through the
2: cracks? Well, we've just covered three things that the NHL could do. One, treat Dryden with a bit more respect and take that suggestion more seriously. Start identifying and have, having a transparent program for concussion spotting. Invest money in brain injury research so that you understand the health of your players as as things are now there's more than 3000 alumni guys who played in the NHL how many of those players are suffering from mental health challenges and the answer is no one can say and why is that because the NHL has never spent a dollar trying to answer that question
1: yeah yeah and, and the ballpark figure percentage would probably be you know very high and i sort of wanted to ask uh and this might seem a bit maybe it seems a bit left field but at one point you relate a quote from wayne gretzky i think around the time of the 1994 lockout that you know nhl players came from middle class families they understood what it means to be in a union and and now they have an average salary of about three million us before escrow but i sometimes wonder how much the struggles and i'm not trying to blame put the blame on on the on the on the wrong people but how much the struggle of retired players and maybe the treatment for the league perhaps you know, tied to sort of a decline of you know, the power of labor in North America?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, if you talk to the average NHL player, I'm sure you guys have interviewed some, some guys in the NHL, I, I have, what they're, what they're concerned about is their life right now. How can they maximize their earnings and stay in the NHL for as long as they can? If you ask the average 24, 25 year old NHL player, what are you concerned about when you're in your mid 40s and your 50s when it comes to the kind of care that you have? They're going to give you a blank stare. They don't think about this. And this is part of the problem because the NHL Players Association, the union that purports to be worried about things like this, is, you know, fixed with trying to meet the needs and demands of its members. So it's worried about trying to maximize profits for players. And it does not spend as much time, if any, on the health and safety of retired players. You know, that's left to the NHL Alumni Association, an association which is funded by the NHL. So, you know, you are back in a situation where players don't have that independent oversight body challenging the NHL to do better. This is is a subject that makes the league uncomfortable. It doesn't want to, you know, have to justify what it does or the care that it gives to, to former players. But at the end of the day, is there anyone out there, anyone, who could say, I have absolute confidence that the NHL is doing everything it can for these guys and shouldn't be challenged and shouldn't be asked to defend its actions and do better for them?
1: Yeah. And any sport that purports to be, you know, a public good obviously should be doing that. Something else that also interested me from from your reporting with TSN and reporting that comes into the book. uh, uh, Now, former football player Nate Jackson, he wrote a really good book called Slow Getting Up. Uh, He wrote a few years ago that, you know, as an ex-player, he's 10 years removed from playing. He uses sort of cannabis because it reframes pain. And I think you covered this in the book, and I have to ask: you know, why would you know what one doctor that you spoke to, who treats proactive pro players, uh, surgical aftercare, be wary of prescribing legal cannabinoid pain relievers instead of opioids?
2: Well, because the play, because the teams uh, and the league are worried about the reputational damage, I believe. You know, cannabinoids. They're they're natural. I, again, I'm not an expert on this. I'm basing this on my reporting and interviewing players and doctors. And maybe they won't work for everyone. I'm talking about marijuana and, and CBD. However, isn't it worth a shot? I mean, if you are playing in the NHL for a period of time, chances are that you're trying to find ways to get to sleep after... Uh, you know, games where your adrenaline is pumping throughout the course of a game, so you're on this incredible high just playing the game with all this you know, coursing through you and then you're trying to get to sleep two hours later, three hours later uh, and you're battling jet lag every couple of days because you're moving around between cities through the course of a season and you're trying to navigate the pain of you know, life as a, as an athlete when you're trying to stay in the lineup so if your options are ambient and you know, percocets or opioids or other even over the counter painkillers. Isn't it worth looking to see if, you know, cannabis would work for you as a potentially healthier alternative?
1: Yeah, and, and indeed I think ESPN did report in September some players in the bubble in Edmonton said they used edibles for exactly what you said, uh to get to sleep, you Neil. Know.
0: Yeah, uh, Rick, I just want to ask you about your career background as well because journalism has come up a lot in this and that's one of the elements of this show we like to talk to the author and, and, and get as much info as we can on them for people that don't know everything about you some people that listen to this program you know, may only know you from TSN but you obviously have an extensive journalism background so could you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to uh, I started out as a sports writer, going to games and talking about, you know, reporting on subjects like why the Canadian Football League doesn't have more Canadian quarterbacks. Um, I wrote for the New York Times and the Globe and Mail and wound up full-time at the Toronto Star and got bored of sports, got bored of asking those, the kind of questions that we talked about. Right. How are you feeling doing athlete profiles? And so I was hired as a foreign correspondent and moved to India and I covered the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I've covered poverty issues throughout Africa. Uh, been on the ground reporting in countries like Saudi Arabia and China. And uh, joined TSN in 2014. So have in my I'm very fortunate to have had the breadth of experience that I've I've had. And you know I'm in a position now where I've got a network that supports me doing stories that matter. You know, in journalism that can call attention and give a voice to people who don't have one, and to hold powerful people accountable, whether it's a pro sports league or whether it's a government, whoever it might be.
0: Would you like to see? I mean, we we talked about this at the beginning of the, of our our interview. Uh, how this you're not seeing this this type of reporting uh, happening? Would you like to see more of it? More you know, more people doing what you're doing in Canada with hockey. Well,
2: let me put it back to you guys would you
0: well i absolutely believe that um you know more true journalism would be beneficial 100 percent anyway um moving on i
2: guess we're only getting one answer there (laughs) Um, (laughs) sorry uh, yes i agree with everything he says
0: (laughs) (laughs) go ahead sorry go ahead rick
2: i'd like to see more of it at the end of the day i i don't i i'd like to hope that people would be interested in doing original content, doing stories that really matter, and contribute to the conversation about public good. You know, about people sometimes will ask, "Oh, do you hate hockey?" on social media, and I just I waste my I don't even waste my time responding. Do I hate hockey? No, I hate a system where we don't have the opportunity to tell honest stories. Where if you're a family like Bridie La you've got no one to go to if you want to share your story publicly and help inform others who might not repeat the mistakes that you've made. So that's my answer.
0: Well, the book starts off with a quote from Bob Simon from CBS News. If you want to be loved, journalism is a poor career choice. I mean, when you started that book, started this book, was that the first thing that came to your mind? because you knew how people kind of consume hockey in Canada?
2: Yeah, it's definitely something that I've thought about. Um, And, you know, it's no secret what people like to read and what people like to give at Christmas or other gifts. They like to give memoirs, you know, of former hockey general managers talking about trades that almost happened or didn't happen or whatever. I like to read about former about players looking back on the good old days when the boys were the boys. You know, so it was a, it was a question that I really did ask myself time and again. How open are people really going to be to having their impressions of this national sport of Canada challenged? How open are people going to be to looking at hockey in a different way?
0: Do you, uh, do you have another project in the works that will be in a similar vein, challenging the NHL?
2: Well, I've always got reporting that's ongoing. Whether whether it'll turn out to be a book or not, I, I can't say. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, even since the book's been published, TSN broadcast a half-hour-long documentary called The Problem of Pain. And that book, or sorry, that uh, TV story documented the experience of active NHL players uh, who say that repeatedly team trainers are giving out a drug called Toradol, an anti-inflammatory prescription drug, uh, which is very powerful and a fantastic painkiller. The problem is that Toradol, if used extensively, uh, the warning on its label says that you should not take this drug more than five days in a row, uh, it can affect your organs. And so Ryan Kessler unveiled in this story that he has suffered from Crohn's disease disease and colitis, and has, you know, days where he goes to the bathroom 20 or 30 times a day, passing blood each time. Kyle Quincy, another former NHL player, talks about his worries of taking so much Toradol, and so does Zenon Konopka. And in the case of every one of those players, the one common thread between their stories is they say that the trainers for their NHL teams never told them about what the potential side effects and dangers of using so much Toradol could be. So, you know, do I have more work in me this way? Absolutely. I'm just not sure whether it's going to come out as a, a podcast or as a Another you know, television story or as a book. Has
0: your job gotten harder as you've pressed more I mean in terms of I know access is something that you know as an investigative journalist you're you're digging I mean you're not looking for the PR guy to send somebody out but I'm just wondering I mean I'm sure the league is probably aware of what you're writing and and I want to know if you're if you've found that your job has gotten harder
2: Uh yeah, that's a great question um I think I think it has and it hasn't on one hand it's definitely harder to do stories through the NHL's communications office, especially when you're quoting, you know, NHL internal emails and quoting the very people in your book that you're asking for help with other stories. Um, Just to be clear, like with every story that I do on the NHL now, I email asking if they want to comment on it. That, That will never change. My responsibility is to give the NHL a chance to comment on all of these stories, whether they take it or not. Um, But it's also, in a way, gotten easier, because who else is doing the work? Who else is holding the NHL accountable like this when it comes to stories on brain injuries? There's a few people uh, who are doing it. You know, Katie Strang at The Athletic does it. Uh, From time to time, you'll have reporters jump into this space, but it's not, I guess my point is I'm not the only one, but it's definitely not a crowded space.
0: Right. And and in terms of I mean, again we talked about you know every, you know, well not in this detail but yeah every fall you know the memoir comes out you know the whatever the Rick Vive book or the Wendell Clark book obviously this isn't that type of book this is as you say true journalism um, I wanted to know uh, part of kind of getting the word out is is, is having to do media media tours or whatever uh has that been i mean have have you had a lot of people wanting to to jump on and talk about this story and then finding that this isn't the joe murphy story that you know they're not going to get the answers they want out of you you know because you're you're trying to tell a bigger story
2: it's definitely the case where i'll do the story about joe uh, or i'll do the interview and the questions will be about joe and i want to talk about more than that right joe's story is important. Make no mistake, but the reason to do the you know to spend the last couple years on this was because I wanted to tell a larger narrative about you know how how he is far from an isolated case. The media has been great though. Uh, You know, I had a chance to do an interview with Matt Galloway on CBC the other day, and Dave Faschuk wrote a full page story about the you know about the book in the Toronto Star, the largest circulation paper in Canada. So I can't complain. You know, it's not, it certainly does not have the people chattering in the hockey world like, uh, you know, Brian Burke might have for his memoir. Right. Um, I don't know. What do you think? What do you, what did you guys think of it? And do you think it, do you think it will be too uncomfortable for many people who follow hockey?
0: I mean, I don't know. I, I think it really depends on the person. I, I think for sure it's not going to be the, the, the book you get for Christmas and you just tear through, you know after dinner. I think you really got to take your time with this and there's a lot of studies and research to process. Um and in that yeah, I I think it's a welcome sight in the sense that it, it isn't your typical typical memoir for sure. And I would yeah, just say it's,
2: it it's definitely not Brian Burke recounting his fights with Steve Simmons. It's not sensational <laughs> like that. Um it is I I believe it's journalism. And uh you know, it's interviewing people, everybody from Joe Murphy's former Billet, Billet family in Penticton, British Columbia, to players and coaches and GMs, to medical experts, you know, through the years, you know, t- former team a former team doctor who says that he was fired by his NHL team because he was worried that players were being put back on the ice too soon after injuries. So um, I'm proud of the book, and uh, I hope people will give it a chance and mark it up and you know hopefully come forward and find ways to get questions to me about it if they either want to challenge me on it or if they want to you know further the conversation about what the nhl can do more like you guys are doing right now
0: (laughs) well we we only have a, a couple of more uh questions for you and we thank you for giving us this much time um and I wanted to ask you uh, right at the end of the book, you thank a few people, Sean Fitzgerald being one of them, and Dan Robson. And I, I one of the things I wanted to ask you, and and you can fill in the blanks for me. Is, is this your first book? Uh, and if so, was yeah, was yeah. Dan did was Dan helpful? And maybe because Dan is a you know obviously very well versed in steering a, a, a narrative. And I think with true journalism, sometimes to steer in a narrative, you, you, is that was he helping you with that? Is that was that your connection with Dan?
2: Well, not so much with the narrative, no. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I talked to Dan a little bit about how contracts with publishers work, so that's what I ah. was leaning on him for. Okay. Uh, and and the same with Sean because this is my first book, and you know, I, I don't understand the book publishing world, and uh, wanted to do this without the use of an agent. So uh, yeah, so that's how it worked out. And and for the record, because I know there had been a few people along the way who've who've asked me the question well, what about the money from this book? You know, what are you keeping? And what about Joe Murphy? Um, Are you exploiting him? And just so people hear this from me directly, like I said, I've talked about this. After my writing expenses, hiring an editor, traveling to Kenora, traveling to Penticton, British Columbia, to St. Louis, to Chicago, um, what was left, I contributed to the Canadian Mental Health Association, to CAMH in Toronto here to the United Way and to the Daily Food Bank uh, in Toronto.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that's, that's definitely, pay, you know, paying it forward. <laughs> and just to quickly add, you were asking me how I take this book as a hockey fan. I sort of look at it, via, you know, the the Friday the model from the TV show, you know, Friday Night Lights, clear eyes, full hearts. If you identify with the, the people who play the game, you need to have your eyes open and about what playing that game is. Uh, can do to them. And that sort of sets me up for a question that's, you know, you're talking about, you know, sort of taking on the national institution of hockey and, you know, speaking for people who haven't had a voice. Uh, you were in the summer, like when all sports were shut down during the pandemic, I think you reported on the Dan Carcillo led uh, class action suit against the Canadian Hockey League about alleged abuse that he and other players were, you know, suffered when they were teenagers. Now, that might not see a courtroom for some time but you know it's the second major class action suit the chl has faced and i'm just wondering like how, how much are those things pointing up that maybe that whole concept of major junior hockey which is really age capped minor pro hockey it might just need it may need a reboot to be modernized and and safer for young people to play
2: Yeah, boy, the the Canadian Hockey League is in a tough spot right now, beyond the pandemic and not being able to play games regularly. By my count, they're facing four lawsuits that have real consequence. You know, there was a lawsuit against the CHL over minimum wage and whether players should be uh, allowed to play without paying them. And that case was actually settled until the judge rejected the settlement, something that almost never happens. Hmm. So that settlement being turned over means that case may move forward again now through the court system. Then the, the CHL is also facing a concussion class action. They're also facing a lawsuit like you mentioned filed by Dan Cursillo and others over hazing and abuse. And they're also facing a challenge in uh, Canadian federal court over anti-competitive behavior. So it, you know, definitely if you're following the CHL and these stories closely, you're going to Feel like you've earned a law degree uh, when this is all done.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, used to cover junior hockey, and I, you know, was one of those people who loved going to the rink. But now it just, you know, a couple of years ago, just an accumulation of things, I just sort of had to say, I'm, I'm, I'm done, done here. I, I just keep imagining, and you can tell me if I'm, you know, out of out of my mind here. Like I just keep imagining, it, you know, maybe it's time to, you know, take some, you know, figure out what can be salvaged about it. And just reboot it as maybe a league for slightly older players, and you know pay salaries, put more emphasis on personal development, not play sixty eight games, maybe play like 50 or something. am I, Am I way off there?
2: I'm probably not the one best to answer that question. You know, I haven't looked into to this, but I do know if I had a 16 year old who was good enough to play in that league, I'd have concerns about the amount of travel that they do in the course of a season about trades in the middle of the season, you know, about how focused he was on schoolwork. And there are kids who are able to juggle everything and, you know, graduate as Ontario scholars and that's great. But we all know how fleeting this life as a pro athlete can be if they make it to the NHL, right? How many junior hockey players don't make it there? So uh I I, I I definitely think there's going to be more conversations about reform and about what needs to change to make this better um, in terms of the specifics. Let's leave that one for another day.
0: Well, thank you for joining us on this day, uh, Mr. Westhead, um, and uh, it was good to have you.
2: I appreciate it, guys. I know, like I said, it's probably not the the traditional hockey book, and uh, I thank you for the, the, the smart questions, and obviously you guys have read the book, and I appreciate that as well. Thank you.
1: You're welcome.
0: Thanks again.